Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. This is the end, beautiful friend, of all elaborate conspiracy theories, the end, of every JFK assassination allegation, the end, of every grassy knoll gunman, the end, will never look into Jim Garrison's eyes, again. Okay, so our Morrison impression isn't great. It doesn't change the fact that our presentation of the JFK episode has reached its inevitable conclusion. We wrap things up here with a meditation on the Zapruder film and its impact on the way that Americans view the assassination, as well as the ongoing impact of the assassination in the broader culture over the decades. We hope you've enjoyed hearing this episode from the archives. The next thing you get from us will be brand new. And we can't wait until you hear it. But of course, the most important and iconic of all films concerning the shooting is the home movie Abraham Zapruder shot in Dealey Plaza on a pleasant Friday in November. We've surely referenced this enough throughout the episode, but we have one more minor addition before we move on. Night notes in Buliosi seconds the fact that the film, which was for decades the urtext that conspiracists would use to bludgeon the Warren Commission supporters, to wit... Although each critic claimed to find incontrovertible evidence of a conspiracy in the Sapruda footage, their interpretations are usually at odds with one another. But there have been some modern developments by which a new generation of conspiracists, reacting to the ever more conclusive computer-aided reconstructions of the assassination, based on the film, which have only reinforced the evidence that all of the bullets came from the book depository. These conspiracists have decided that, rather than accept Oswald did it, they would prefer to presume that the film has been secretly altered. Reality denial is a powerful drug, my friends. Kennedy and assassination references remain pervasive in our culture. Counterfactual narratives from the X-Files to the Watchmen movie establish the bad guy bona fides of their mid-century villains by depicting them as secret assassins on the grassy knoll. Then, of course, there's the Simpsons' Mayor Quimby, a Kennedy archetype if there ever was one. Welcome, swappers, to the Springfield Swap Meet. Ich bin ein Springfield Swap Meet patron. Though, to be fair, 30 years in, he's never met a yellow, four-fingered Oswald archetype. Perhaps the most elaborate television reference is the legendary Seinfeld Magic Loogie parody, in which it's found that, based on their positions, both Kramer and Newman couldn't possibly have been hit by the same spittle. Up the ramp. Mm-hmm. Then you say you were struck. On the right temple. The spit then proceeds to ricochet off the temple, striking Newman between the third and the fourth rib. The spit then came off the rib, made a right turn, hitting Newman in the right wrist, 
causing him to drop his baseball cap. The spit then splashed off the wrist, pauses in midair, mind you, makes a left turn and lands on Newman's left thigh. That is one magic loogie. Books dealing with the assassination have included the high-end Pomo ruminations of Don DeLillo's Libra, in which the event starts out as rogue CIA agents planning an assassination designed to fail, hoping to blame the Cubans and convince the surviving Kennedy to renew efforts to kill Castro. In typical DeLillo style, the conspiracists find the mysteries of reality outpacing their plans. On encountering Oswald, they realize he's a patsy so perfectly suited to their existing scheme that the coincidence should be impossible. It's as if there are other forces manipulating reality toward a predetermined end. Their plan ends up turning into a genuine assassination without anyone ever seeming to make that deliberate choice. On the more pop culture end of the literary spectrum, modern-day Dickens Stephen King attacked the topic of the assassination in his book 11-22-63, which was subsequently turned into a TV miniseries that we haven't watched yet. In the book, a schoolteacher is shown a very specific gateway through time that allows him to travel to 1958, where he stays for five years, stops the assassination, and returns to the future to find his actions have had horrific consequences he could never have imagined. In both of these books, the assassination is seen as a predetermined, fated event, rocky shoals against which the efforts of men to change this historical turning point break apart. It's as if the sheer unlikeliness of it, Oswald meeting Jack, another Jack meeting Oswald two days later, is so important to reality as we now know it, that even wishing to change it is wishing to upend all of that reality. The assassination has even impacted the world of video games, most notably in the form of a simple, low-resolution, yet weirdly affecting game that caused a furor upon its release in 2004. Even then, JFK Reloaded's graphics were rudimentary, but the effect remains powerful. When the game starts, you have a first-person view out the sixth-floor window of the book depository as Kennedy's limo drives down Houston Street toward its fateful turn onto Elm. You can sight down a rifle and fire up to three shots, simulating Oswald's feet, with realistic reloading times and other factors included. Knight touches on the game and the controversy that surrounded it upon its launch. It was felt by many media commentators to be beyond the pale of decency in turning the death of Kennedy into mere entertainment. The game was later pulled, and the small Scottish company that made it collapsed. But the irony is that its digital simulation in fact served to confirm the Warren Commission version. First, that firing three shots in the available time was possible, and second, that in doing so, the single bullet theory was possible. The game's still available online. I missed twice on my first effort, but still killed the tiny simulated president with a truly upsetting shot to the head. It was an uncomfortable feeling, and I'm not the only one who felt this way. I don't actually understand the YouTube phenomenon of watching not particularly interesting people play games and then reacting to them in real time, but to be fair, I am a certified old, and therefore my opinion on whippersnappers and their hippity-hop raps and their consarned snapchats is not to be taken seriously. However, this guy's reaction when he suddenly and rather easily shoots a simulation of JFK in the head is very human and very upsetting. Alright, there he is right there at the front. There's all his men. Now, I know the only thing I know about the JFK assassination is he was shot in the back. So, and I also think there was three shots. I don't know where the hell the other two shots went, but I guess it was about probably right here. Oh my god, I shot him in the head. I fucking shot him in the head. <laughs> 
Oh my god. Okay. Okay, well that was it. Oh my god. Oh god, it's gonna be a replay. Oh my god. Ew. Oh shit. And so, having completed our thorough, but still far from complete, review of the assassination and its continuing impact on our culture, we prepare to close with a more personality-driven look at the two figures most responsible for the continued popularity of JFK conspiracies. And now, ladies and gentlemen, from the four corners of our great land, we present this episode of Profiles in Crazy. Let's take one more run at Garrison and Stone. During the heyday of the Shaw prosecution, after the initial arrest but before everyone figured out the DA was full of shit, the six-foot-eight prosecutor known locally as the Jolly Green Giant became something of a folk hero. People liked the idea that there might be a more satisfying conclusion to the murder of the young president than an angry commie loner gunned down by another angry loner, and they liked the man who postured himself as the hero taking on the powers that be to get to the truth. He even had a song written in his honor by an artist calling himself Johnny Reb. A few years ago, in the year of 63, a president was shot and he died. And the man accused of killing him was shot to death before he was even tried. Then the Warren Commission made up of what should be the greatest lawman of our time. Wrapped up the case. Said the assassination was the work of a one watt mind. Keep a working big Jim. We hope you prove they're wrong. Keep a working big Jim. We're with you all day long. But behind the scenes, as we've already alluded, Garrison was running an office where stretching, bending, or even breaking the law was simply a part of doing business. And the activities of this office were a reflection of the strange, and in many ways dangerous, personality of the man in charge. Patricia Lambert offers a panoply of examples of Garrison's questionable fitness for office, as well as some much darker allegations that, while they have never been fully proven, are nonetheless deeply troubling. To start with, back in 1951, he was discharged from the military due to a severe and disabling psychoneurosis of long duration that had interfered with his social and professional adjustment. This condition predated his military service, and treatment would require a long-term psychotherapeutic approach. Unfortunately, there's no record of his having pursued this long-term treatment. What he did do, though, after taking office is channel this neurosis into crushing anyone who resisted him. He was particularly harsh on gay New Orleanians. We already saw this with his persecution of Shaw and Ferry. But early in his tenure, he focused on busts of French Quarter gay bars and their patrons. After one such sweep, a curious reporter discovered that the formal charge lodged against them was being a homosexual in an establishment with a liquor license. Which, even in the 60s, wasn't actually a crime. As part of his overall Mafia Kennedy connection, Moldea also interrogates some credible allegations that Garrison may have been deliberately protecting, or at least ignoring the impact of organized crime figures in New Orleans. During the various French Quarter vice sweeps his office undertook in the early 60s, for example, he somehow never raided any businesses associated with the notorious boss of New Orleans, Carlos Marcello. He also hilariously claimed that there was no organized crime in New Orleans. We'd be willing to entertain an argument that any other element of life in the city wasn't organized. But crime? Forget about it. 
if he was somehow in the pocket of Marcello, it seems weird that he would have built his quirky, nonsensical Kennedy case around the culpability of David Ferry, who definitely was a known Marcello associate. But Moldea suggests it was possible Garrison didn't know about this relationship. The FBI had that info, and the feds were no fan of Garrison and his nonsense. Regardless, there's absolutely no doubt that as the case progressed and Garrison gained ever more attention from the press, his behavior got stranger and stranger. For example, let's sit back as Gerald Posner explains Garrison's assertion that he had found Jack Ruby's unlisted number in Oswald's address book, which, if true, would be very important evidence. But it's not true? Come on. Per Garrison, it was written in code, which, thankfully, genius Jim had been able to crack as follows. First, he assumed some Cyrillic, i.e. Russian language, letters in this book referred to a P.O. or post office box. He then, for reasons that exceed our understanding, converted those letters to W.H. and scrambled the numbers 19106 until he had the number 6901. Somehow. He then subtracted 1300 and got WH1-5601, Ruby's phone number. When asked how he came to subtract 1300, he said it was simply the block on Dauphine Street where Clay Shaw lived. When a reporter challenged him that his formula was completely arbitrary and clearly worked backwards to reach Ruby's number, he angrily said, Well, that's a problem for you to think over, because you obviously missed the point. We've said it once, we'll say it again. Numerology is the dumbest of all of the dumb mystical concepts. We're going to move on, but we need you to let us do this code nonsense just one more time. Garrison later took the number 1147 that appeared in Oswald's address book, multiplied it by 10, rearranged the numbers, subtracted 1700, and remultiplied. He said it resulted in 522-8874, the CIA's phone number in New Orleans, although he failed to mention it was listed in the phone book. In case you're not yet convinced that Garrison was a few peers short of a jury, here's another eyewitness account of his behavior from near the start of the trial. He took a taxi home one night. Reaching his destination, he threw money at the driver, dove into the bushes near his house, and hid there for several minutes, carefully scrutinizing his surroundings before sprinting to his front door. Among the forces he believed were arrayed against his office's quest for the truth was none other than the former Attorney General of the United States, he asserted that RFK had made very positive efforts to stymie the investigation. It is quite apparent to me, said Garrison, that for one reason or another, he does not want the truth to be brought out. As to his approach to that investigation, multiple reports, including from those on his own team, suggested Garrison would first decide on a suspect, usually someone who fell into one or more categories he thought made them suspicious, including military service, unconventional religious views, etc., then he would shuffle and reshuffle the evidence, such as it was, until he had a pattern that would kind of sort of fit the suspect he had chosen. As his former first assistant, Charles Ward, put it, Most of the time you marshal the facts, then deduce your theories. But Garrison deduced a theory, then he marshaled his facts. And if the facts didn't fit, he'd say they'd been altered by the CIA. Which is, you know, kind of a bad approach for a person with the powers of a district attorney. Oh, and he was a wife abuser. There were at least two incidents at the same restaurant. Brennan's, a wonderful place we absolutely recommend you visit. In the more famous one, Garrison got belligerent and drunk, eventually storming out after tossing his drink in his wife's face. Clay Shaw happened to be there. He harbored a suspicion that this, in fact, played into Garrison's later relentless persecution. Other reports suggested his treatment included serious bodily injury to his spouse. 
Just as disturbingly, Lambert relates a mostly forgotten story that Garrison fondled a 13-year-old boy at his athletic club. After decades of silence, she convinced the victim and his brother to give her their stories anonymously. And while we're far from qualified to fully evaluate them, in this age of Me Too, they sound extremely credible to us. The family decided not to pursue it, afraid for good reason that Garrison would arrange to ruin the lad's life. Others who knew Garrison have alleged he was basically a pedophile. So. Even assuming he may not have known about all of these allegations when he decided to make Garrison the avatar of good and righteousness in his movie, why the fuck did Oliver Stone decide to focus his film on this shitbird and his prosecution? Lambert bemoans the fact that because of this movie, Garrison is also infused with the qualities and general star glow of Kevin Costner's past performances, the quiet courage and incorruptibility of Elliot Ness, the spiritual true-heartedness of Dances with Wolves, the selflessness of Robin Hood. Garrison now embodies all that, too. Reinvented by Hollywood, he shines like a new penny. Bugliosi is particularly incensed by the film and its effect on popular understanding of the assassination. In addition to his obvious revulsion as a fellow prosecutor at Garrison's unconscionable abuse of power, he's also livid about the fact that in the early 90s, those who knew nothing about the case and had formed no opinion, i.e. the nation's youth, which at that point included F.J., overwhelmingly bought Stone's cinematic fantasy, hook, line, and sinker, and even the consolation of the fact that Garrison's prosecution of the case had originally been a huge negative blow to the conspiracists back in 1969 is destroyed by the far greater impact that the Costner version of Garrison had on the public. Or, as he puts it, the film JFK has caused far more damage to the truth about the case than perhaps any single event other than Ruby's killing of Oswald. How did it cause this damage? Because Stone literally never presents a single piece of the overwhelming evidence that Oswald was the one and only shooter of Kennedy. So a murder case, the Kennedy assassination, where there's an almost unprecedented amount of evidence of guilt against the killer, Oswald, is presented to millions of moviegoers as one where there wasn't one piece of evidence at all. Regardless, Stone chose Garrison's prosecution and his book on the trail of the assassins as the basis for his film. But if you've seen the movie, especially the Mr. X scene with Donald Sutherland, you'll know that his real thrust is building a case for the essentially unbounded evil and bloodthirstiness of the military-industrial complex and its ravening desire to expand the war in Vietnam. In Stone's telling, JFK was the dashing young president who, learning from his Cuban misadventures in the Bay of Pigs invasion and the Missile Crisis, had decided to buck the Cold War trend and withdraw American troops from Vietnam. This, in Stone's telling, is the reason that the CIA slash FBI slash DOD slash whomever else had him killed. Knight has a lot to say on this topic, starting with the weird naivete about the pre-assassination United States that Stone's approach betrays. It's as if Stone believes in the ahistorical notion that America is an exceptional nation, a beacon of light to the world, that would otherwise have remained innocent and uncorrupted if it had not been for the evil intentions of either a conspiracy or a lone gunman ignores the possibility that there was already a long history of trigger-happy violence towards American presidents. To bolster that point, he refers to a second mid-60s commission, also convened by President Johnson, called the National Committee on the Causes and Prevention of Violence. Its report serves to remind readers that the event was not an aberration in the history of American politics, nor was Oswald a unique personality. 
but only the latest in a series of outbursts of political violence that had seen previous peaks in the 1820s, 1890s, and 1930s. A tradition of violence is rooted in American specific history and cultural myths of the frontier, vigilantism, direct action, independence, and individualism, not forgetting the easy availability of weapons. Yep, all of that sounds like the America we know. The commission notes that the U.S. has far more political violence than all other developed nations. From 1919 to 1968, the U.S. is the fifth most violence-prone behind Cuba, Korea, Iran, and Morocco. The only bright spot is that our domestic assassinations haven't fueled real political change, but rather just an increased willingness to believe conspiracy theories. Obviously. And as to Stone's overarching theory of the motivation behind his imagined conspiracy, that Kennedy was killed for adopting a dovish stance on Vietnam, several historians have pointed out that the speech Kennedy was to have given in the trademark at lunchtime on the 22nd of November reconfirmed his hawkish approach to the Cold War, with several key phrases designed to reassure local Texas arm manufacturers that their interests would not be ignored. Knight is not having Stone's dissembling assertions that his fast and loose approach to the truth is in service of a Rashomon-style interrogation of differing perspectives on reality. After all, the film dramatizes such apparent non-events as someone faking the famous photo of Oswald posing with his rifle, photos that his own wife attested were genuine. So what is Stone doing? He's making an impassioned argument for his Kennedy was going to get out of Vietnam theory, facts be damned. By the way, that ex-Donald Sutherland character was based on a real guy, Fletcher Prouty, a former chief liaison officer between the military and the CIA's covert operations. This real-life figure story completely hooked Stone, but... Prouty's undoubtedly unique insider knowledge must be tempered by the fact that he has also had links with the Liberty Lobby, a far-right conspiracist group that inserts the Kennedy assassination into a wider story about the coming New World Order. Of course, the New World Order is a topic for another show, but don't worry, we have a theme song for it already. So, what have we learned? Well, we've learned that in spite of 66 years of insistence to the contrary, there's still no good evidence that anyone besides Lee Harvey Oswald was responsible for the assassination of JFK. And similarly, killing Lee Oswald was all Jack Ruby's idea. And we've learned that however positive their original intentions may have been, all of the leading conspiracy voices, including Garrison, Mark Lane, Jim Mars, and Oliver Stone, eventually went from investigators to ideologues. And like ideologues of all stripes, at some point they started deciding that shading the truth in favor of what they saw as a larger truth was well worth the stain that it would put on their souls. What's the future of JFK conspiracy? Perhaps as Knight predicts, it is destined to fade into the historical background as those who lived through it gradually die off. But maybe there is something so pervasive, so influential, about the Kennedy conspiracy that it forms a truly unique, potentially immortal, version of the paranoid strain. This has been The Paranoid Strain. Follow us on Twitter at Paranoid Strain, email us at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com, and visit on the web at theparanoidstrain.com. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra, and again, as always, we are equally indebted to the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. Final mixing assistance comes from Big Mucho, who also put together our super-duper website, and Willem UFO makes the pretty pictures. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. 
Next episode, we take a quick breather and pound the nonsense out of the idea that we didn't land on the moon. Spoiler, one of our nearest and dearest believes in this conspiracy. Probable non-spoiler, it's the same guy who has doubts about 9-11. In the meantime, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least, not you specifically. Shows the shot to kill
while it's watching the movie. Coming up the aisle is Jack Ruby. The lights come up, he starts to yell. I'm just a patsy, but war is hell. Soul on the grassy knoll. Oh, back into the left. Back into the left. It was all come film. Frame 313 shows the shot to kill. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.